Hi, everyone. This is your spoiler warning. If you haven't seen episode three, watch that first and then come back. Trust me. They think he's gone. Yeah, what? They think he's gone. What happened? What uh, do you mean? Well, they think they think Dad died. What? Yeah. No. I'm sorry. No. Um. No, I can't have that. Welcome to the official Succession podcast from HBO. I'm Kara Swisher, and the moment we've been dreading has finally arrived. My dad's dying. I'm just going to do facts, okay? What if this is a drill? What if it's a big fucking test? This nation has lost a passionate champion and an American titan, and we lost a beloved father. Thank you. Thank God I have a few very special guests to unpack this episode that is destined for TV history. Series creator Jesse Armstrong, director Mark Mylod, and later Logan Roy himself, back from the dead, the legendary Brian Cox. He'd be a lot better off if he didn't love his children. He'd be a happier man. But he loves his children and it's a conflict. He can't deal with the pain of it. The fact that he loves his children and they don't honor him. Episode three, titled Connor's Wedding, was written by Jesse and directed by Mark. We open with Logan blowing off Connor's wedding. Instead, he's headed to Sweden to meet with Lucas Matson. The rest of the Roy kids are on a massive boat when they get a call that Logan has collapsed on his private jet. And just like that, he's gone. And while others scramble over the fate of the company, Kendall, Roman, and Schiff come together to face a future without their father. We are highly liable to misinterpretation. So what we do today will always be what we did the day our father died. Joining me now to talk about this episode is Jesse Armstrong and Mark Mylod. Thank you both for being here. Holy heck, I have to start by asking, why did you kill Logan Roy now in episode three of this final season? It could have been a series finale moment for many. Jesse? Yeah, it's good question. And we talked about it a lot in the writer's room. And I guess there's one noble and one ignoble. And right. So the ignoble one is like, because it would be surprising. We try not to, you know, have those considerations like top of the pile, but they do exist of like, what will people be expecting? What will, would one expect in a TV show? But the one that which was much more overriding, and I think is the noble one, is because we wanted to see what it was like after he was gone. And it felt like you know, you followed uh, the kids and you'd be really interested to see what happened to their lives once he was gone. And we wanted the bulk of a season to explore that. So the logic then became compelling. Mm -hmm. It was ignoble, but it worked. So uh, Mark, it really surprised me that Logan died off screen. We don't get a big moment of him collapsing. He dies unceremoniously. Talk about doing it this way and from directing it from this point of view. Well, that was central to the script. When Jesse first told me about the plan quite a long time before we started shooting the season it was I think it was always in his head that it was happen off screen because big events don't happen in a perfect way do they always happen in Mm -hmm. sometimes in a humdrum way and this idea of um taking away all the kind of television cliches of the the kind of perfect tv death I thought was really brilliant I love that idea of it of us the audience being hijacked in exactly the same way that the siblings are when they receive the news. So we're we're immediately kind of parachuted into their emotional experience. Mm -hmm, Because they they try to bring the phone up to him. Because you see little bits of him, right, Mm. when you were doing that. You you, You saw the top of his head. I was really fascinated by the choices you made in terms of visuals. Yes, it was funny. That was a 
Jesse and I both had exactly the same, I think, visual instinct on that. When we started shooting those sequences on the plane, I felt oddly kind of squeamish, which is not normally something I think I'm guilty of. Um, with showing the character at all, we, we made a choice to show him once quite specifically and you know parts of his torso at certain points with the shock treatment but yeah it felt oddly kind of disrespectful in some way a hundred percent and then the putting the phone next to him was which mm. i've had friends who've done that yeah. when that something like that has happened was there ever a version of this final season where logan didn't die no he w- that was always coded into it once it was decided it was going to be the final season, which was decided, this decision was pretty early. And also where it fell in the season was pretty early. You know, occasionally when I was going crazy about what the end would be, you would, I would think, oh, wow, most tragedies end with the death at the end. Mm-hmm. And we'd go back and look at that as a shape. But it really was this feeling of wanting to see how they would cope afterwards that was the prevailing one. But he was always going to die. It felt like that that had to happen. So, Mark, tell me about the cast reaction during the first table read when you read the script together for the first time. As you can imagine, it was pretty emotional as, um, yeah, two of the, I think, most emotional table reads I've ever been involved in were this episode, episode three, and uh, and our final episode, which was um, <laughs> me and Jesse were barely holding it together in that one. Yeah, it was very emotional and, and obviously you know, specifically emotional for Brian as well and and the the sense of, you know, losing our number one on the call sheet. Mm -hmm. Did you tell him before, either of you? Oh, yeah, yeah. As soon as it was really set, I'd spoke to Mark and other key collaborators to double-check it was like the right idea and I didn't want to fuck it up and tell Brian and then have to retract. So I made, like, really, really sure that it was the definite right shape of the season and it was mm-hmm. the last one and everything. And then, yeah, I took a sort of soulful march up from the writer's room in Victoria to Soho to have lunch with Brian and tell him. And, uh, yeah, I was very sad and and sort of a bit humanly nervous about telling him. Oh, I bet. I would be terrified. Yeah, I think I was terrified. I think that's a better word. <laughs> but you're coming back in flashbacks. Flashbacks, flashbacks. Yeah, I, was, I thought I was a cool cucumber, but I was like, why do I feel like I want to go to the toilet and cry. Uh, <laughs> that was the correct reaction, just so you know that. That's great. Mark, you're no stranger to directing intense succession episodes, but do you feel added responsibility to get this one right? Yes, in short, yes, uh, a huge responsibility. Um, yeah, and, and, and fear, and that, that feeling like I needed to use the bathroom, yes, um, a lot. Um, but once we found the central location, the boat, uh, and started to block that out, then the fear is quickly trumped by just excitement, really, and, and an odd kind of sense of being in a, always in a desperate hurry to get it on film, to feel like it's safe and it's in, in the can, you know. So that excitement and that adrenaline quickly takes over. What scenes uh, you worried about pulling off, each of you? Like, what moments were essential to get right? Jesse, why don't you go first? Oh, yeah, um, that's a good question. And that's be- it's a better question for Mark, because I-, I think once I've written it and I've kind of done the table read, which has gone OK, and I've got notes from my key collaborators, in a weird way, the sort of that terrible weight of like, oh, God, are we going to pull this off? It goes off my shoulders and it goes directly onto Mark Mylod's shoulders. <laughs> Thanks, Jesse. What was the scene you were most worried about, Mark? Scene 11, as it will henceforth be known, um, which was a very long scene. Um, It begins with, I think, Sarah's character Shiv going 
upstairs from the main party area into the VIP area where the, where the, the other Roy siblings are. And it goes right through them receiving the phone call from Tom learning of Logan's sickness at that stage and trying to work out. And it goes right through up to and including Kendall stepping out onto the rear deck and calling Frank and Frank saying, I think he's gone. And um, that sequence... Again, I think Jesse and I, we do obviously disagree sometimes, but on this, this we were both on the same page that we wanted it to feel like it was all in real time. It, it felt like every time that you cut away from the character or kind of jump forward in time, you lost, you kind of took your foot off the gas. And it felt to me with the camera that the camera had to be sadistic, really. It had to be unflinching and just keep looking at the pain. It was a 10-minute sequence in the middle of the episode where Kendall, Roman, and Chip take turns saying goodbye to their dad or their friends. Let's listen to a moment of it. You're by his ear. You can go now. You're talking to him now. Oh, oh, okay. Hey. Hey, Dad. Uh, hello. Um, you're going to be okay. And I'm sorry. Is he dead? I don't know. I don't know if he's dead. Is he fucking dead? I don't know. Tom? Huh? Tom? Hey, hey. Is he even alive? I don't know, honey. Are you just being nice to me? Is he gone? He's, uh, I don't, I don't know. We, he, uh... We don't know. We don't know. Okay, I'm putting you back there, okay? Uh, okay. Well, um... I don't know what to do. Whoa. <laughs> what was the energy like on the set that day? Tell me about filming the scene, Mark. It was pretty electric, as you can imagine. Talk about the mechanisms, Mark, because you had to do a number of things, right? You had to have cameras reload and all sorts of... We shoot mm -hmm. on film, so it's not like mm -hmm. just digital where you can roll and roll. So that you had to have them reload, didn't you, as they went? Yeah, there was a... I'd been chatting with Kieran and we... Uh, at some point, one of us, he claims it was me, I think it was him, um, said, wouldn't it be good if we could shoot this whole sequence without reloading, if we could just shoot it as one? And if we did that, it would have been, to achieve it, we had to shoot, I think it was timing out at 27 minutes, 28 minutes at the time, which, uh, and, and as Jesse says, you know, that even with 1,000-foot camera loads, we can only shoot 10 minutes at a time with mm -hmm. the two cameras. It seemed like a really great idea to shoot the whole sequence. Um, so once we shot it all slightly more piecemeal, i.e. in 10-minute sections, um, I think we shot it over a day and a half maybe. At the end of that, I spoke with the cast and said, can you take a two-hour break and then we're going to run the whole thing, which was uh, met with trepidation but also enthusiasm. So they went away and Patrick and Ethan and Gregor, our camera operators, we got our heads together and worked out a system whereby to make sure all, there was at least one camera rolling all the time and we hid replacement magazines around the set and mm. other camera bodies so that they could do quick changes and in that way we could go downstairs and upstairs and go everywhere we wanted and knowing that we'd be in a certain place after the roll ran out and then one camera would quickly change and reload. Um, wow. And it was, um, it felt like we were kind of going live on national television um, and we did it. We only did it once. And the results were, in my opinion, electric. Yeah, absolutely. Well, sometimes live does that, mm. right? Sometimes live does that. It gives people a sense of urgency. What did you kind of things you had to do to help the actors get into the raw emotional place? Um, 
if I'm really honest, nothing at all, not getting in the way is as much a part of my directing Bible um, as anything. Um, they're so smart. They're so mm-hmm. talented. They know their characters so well. They're so committed to, to finding the moment. In this case, it was very clear to everybody specifically what the what the raw emotional tone was. Um, so it was really just setting the environment for them to go and to give them as much freedom as possible to explore that. Angie has made it easier than ever to hire high-quality pros to get all your home service jobs done well. Whether it's routine maintenance and emergency repair or a dream project, Angie lets you compare quotes from multiple local pros, browse homeowner reviews, and even book a service instantly. Angie's been connecting people with skilled pros for nearly 30 years. So the next time you have a home project, bring it to Angie to get your job done well. Download the free Angie mobile app today or visit Angie.com. That's A-N-G-I dot com. Was there actually someone on the other end of the phone that they were talking with? Mm. Oh, yeah. Almost all of that, right, Mark, is yeah. live. They, the actors are very generous with each other yeah. and they get on the line. And we've even used that in the production sound is often, right, yeah. Mark, is a lot of it is just through the phone. And you have that, you know, that weirdly distorted thing, which we all know from having important conversations. Mm-hmm. So, yeah, that's right, isn't it, Mark? Yeah, it is. Uh, it's a as you say, it's it's been a kind of creed of the show from the start um, that when there is any important conversations, the other actors will make themselves available. In, in this case, Matthew was back home in, in London, so he was having to be up at all sorts of odd hours and late into the night. Saying I'm putting it by his ear. Yeah, almost fantastic. So the kids have been thinking about their father dying for years and possibly wishing about it. Um, yet this in this scene, they seem completely blindsided by it, which feels true to many people experience grief. What conversations about grieving or death did you have behind the scenes, Jesse? Did you pull from any of your own experiences? Um, in the writer's room, it was cathartic. There was a number of conversations about different experiences of these terrible moments and then a lot of what would happen to these particular characters, I guess, and feeling the mm-hmm. awful mechanism by which for public and semi-public figures, a private moment becomes a public moment. I guess that's the seesaw in the middle of the episode, which is grim and fascinating, I think, to see the balance shift. Yeah, absolutely. Because the public part is just as important. And he, and Kendall refers to that. You know, we're going to be known for this for the rest of our lives. So let's talk about how each of the kids react. They are all so distinct. Kendall wants the facts. Shiv falls apart. And Roman just is in straight up denial. Let's listen to this. He has gone. Okay. I think mm. he has died. Well, okay, we don't know that. So Sure, I get it. But like, <laughs> I think they know. Okay, okay, maybe. Roman, maybe is all. I think you have to accept that Okay, I'm not, like, saying anything. All I'm saying is that we actually don't know. That's it. That's all I'm saying. Okay, right. Well, yes, but you sound delusional. I sound... What, what am I out-fucking-voted here? No, Rome. Sorry. I'm just saying, come on, you know? that. What? They... No. No. No, they don't. He's... No. It's okay. He's no, no, no. fucking well, no. dead! Well, okay, well, there's no need to fucking say that, right? Until we know there's no goddamn... What's the point of keep on saying it? All I'm saying, I'm not being crazy. I'm saying a fact. I'm saying we don't know. And until we do know, it's not a very nice thing to say, is it? Okay. So fucking stop! Talk about that denial, Jesse. He couldn't bear the thought of him dying. And what does that say? What were you trying to communicate there? Just felt true. If you follow the character back through the season, you'll probably... He, he's the most... He's unable to think about his dad's death often when it's brought up. And and also there's something true there, I think, which occurred to me, which is you just, until someone said it, it's hard to believe. And also there is a sort of uh, 
um, Schrodinger's cat element of like, until a doctor's seen him and said it, weird things happen in the world, especially with technology. <laughs> and it like, no. you, it is legitimate to say yeah. he hasn't been pronounced dead. So please stop saying it. I, I feel like I'm on Roman's side <laughs> at that point. Yeah. Although technically... Technically, he's not dead, right? And that's what you're saying. Yeah, I guess, and it's hard to believe these things, right? Until you've, until you, and that's what we see maybe at the end of the episode is him having to face up to that. Until you've experienced them, it can feel very odd and disembodied. Yeah, you don't want it to be a thing. Uh, Mark, classic succession transportation moves in this episode: huge boat. They move locations on this boat. Then they get on a little boat. There's a helicopter. There's a plane. Uh, talk about why you keep them on the move besides they're fabulously wealthy. And this is what fabulously wealthy people do is go from plane to car to boat to this and that. That's really the rhythms that Jesse writes with. But my my contribution to that on the percussion side is is the mechanics, the kinetic energy of the episode. And obviously, you know, we're, we're very still and very deliberately claustrophobic, both on the aircraft with Matthew and co. And of course, in that upper cabin uh, as we get into the machinations of the you know how to announce the death you know i felt and obviously jesse felt in the writing that at a certain point we needed to break out and uh, physically transport the characters to the airport and i always grasp onto those moments to take a big lung full of figurative air and allow you know nick Patel's brilliant talents to come to the fore for a moment and so it's really a question of actually following the logic of how would those characters get from there to there in the shortest period of time and how can we make it visually interesting you were very keen mark to get the ship moving yeah. i was like why would they they wouldn't they get a word to the captain and you were like no no no, no it's got to leave it's got to leave and then eventually i persuaded myself or maybe it gets confused and the message gets lost in the bottle yeah. and then and yeah. so i think it was a good yeah. a very good idea and it trapped them even more yeah exactly so it feels fitting that logan dies on the day where the family should have all been together uh but logan's flying off for the business meeting if logan knew this was his last day do you think he would have gone to connor's wedding instead or just that just the door they went through i think this is how we would like to go this is actually a very happy episode because you know what he's on a private plane flying to do the biggest deal he's got out at exactly the right moment and he goes off pretty quickly and painlessly and is kids whispering in his ear that they loved him i think it's an absolutely it's a very happy episode <laughs> yeah oh okay happy we should we should change the soundtrack and actually to reflect that <laughs> you put the kazoo on there didn't you mark i wanted the kazoo you don't you didn't fuck me in the edit and take that kazoo off <laughs> so his decision not to come to Medding, Medding reminds me of something he said to Kendall way back in the pilot. Tells Kendall he won't be CEO because he came to his 80th birthday instead of closing a deal. And here we see Logan choosing business over family and then ultimately death. Yeah, and I, and I think there's a nice scene, at the, isn't it? At the end of the previous episode when when Roman's asking him what about going to the wedding and, and Brian just did this little shrug. And yeah, he, he, I think that's what he prioritizes and that's how he is. Yeah, shrug, shruggy. When Logan dies, the business doesn't stop. And that's another part of this episode is the business and they have to make the announcement and how they make the announcement, the chaos around that, because there's a lot of chefs in this situation. But Shiv, Kendall and Roman are not interested in the business for once. We see them bonding as siblings, like this moment before their press conference. Conference. Let's listen to this. Are we going to be okay? Yeah. Yeah. We'll be okay. You're not going to be okay. Well, you're not going to be okay. You're not going to be okay. You're fucked. You're fucked. You're totally fucked. You're very fucked. <laughs> <laughs> well, that was sweet. Is this the closest they've ever been? 
from your perspective? Yeah, it's, they're pretty close at the end of the last season as, as they shared big confidences, but I think it is. And that feels right, doesn't it? I mean, sometimes uh, families can fracture at these kind of moments, but these kids come together. And I think I think that felt right. It's lovely when we do get those moments. We, you know, the, One of the things I loved about the start of season four was that we did get to see a totally new dynamic that we really haven't seen, I think, since the boathouse in maybe the last or the second last episode of season one, where you just got a sense of um, the thing that can never be a real kind of return to innocence for them as kids, almost the childhood they could never have. There was a, a lovely simplicity to that dynamic that I loved and I you want it to stay and you want it to go on and for that to be their lives, but you know that won't happen. No, no, not at all. And just you talk about the statement they gave to the press. One of the things, it was sort of like kids playing at business. You know what I mean? Like, this is what we need to do. They find, they seem to be chaotic in terms of the thing to do. Talk about that scene and how you wrote it like this. Is that their way of staying connected to their father after he's gone? Uh, in the writer's room, we looked at quite a lot. Um, Ghislaine Maxwell, after her father mm-hmm. died, um, she gave a statement in, I think it's the Canary Islands, where the, where the boat went back to. He's a British media mogul who mm-hmm. um, died falling off or jumping off the back of his yacht. And Ghislaine needs no introduction at this Ghislaine point. Ghislaine now needs no introduction, right? But at that point, was just his uh, favoured daughter. So that was a, something of a model. But yeah, it's that moment where they have to go public. I, I think they do not a bad job. She wants to express some public sentiment, but they also need to make that statement to calm the markets. And they also need to put a flag in the ground if they don't want to get excluded from the business by the Logan's lieutenants. So at the end of the episode, Shiv, Roman and Kendall go their separate ways. Why do they leave each other? That's a good question. It just felt right that yeah, maybe they could have gone home and maybe it's a problem of luxury that you have your apartment. And I guess the psychological thing for me is Roman needs to see it to believe it. Uh, mm-hmm. The other two don't and rather do not want to see it, which is a, a choice that they make. And I guess once that happened, there's a split. But may- maybe it's a fast forward to the sad inevitability that however much you get bonded by these moments, that then you have to face life alone. So maybe it's a fast forward to that. So Mark, the one Roy kid who wasn't emotionally alone at the end is Connor because he and Willow get married. Hmm. They aren't mourning, they're celebrating. Talk about that scene because it was a wonderful shot. That was a great shot. And it was sort of, you didn't see it that up close, but what were you trying to communicate there? Really actually a triumph of this relationship. I get actually quite emotional when I remember the first episode I directed, the second episode of season one. and, and With which this episode shares some similarities, right? Mm, yeah. And Justine, who plays Willa, well, her character walked into the room for the first time, which it was just a, a very funny idea to me at that time. And then gradually it became this portrait of a kind of modern marriage emerged or modern relationship um, emerged. Quite a quite a harsh take on it probably but I became very invested in their relationship as I think you know many of the audience have and uh, so yeah for them to find a way through all those obstacles to make that choice I thought was very romantic Um, you know how long it will last goodness knows yeah (laughs) Well, they rented the boat, but what were you thinking, <laughs> Jesse? Uh, he was seems relieved. Connor. Yeah. Yeah. Um, in in terms of the relationship, it, I guess it also prompts a moment of honesty between Connor and Willa, and that there's a question right at the heart of it. She was a sex worker when they met, and mm-hmm. so there's always a question <laughs> about mm-hmm. what the nature of the relationship is. And I think it she's as touchingly as honest as she can be, and it's not without a certain amount of affection. So I guess it's it's as happy an ending as I could imagine for that couple or a midpoint 
Yeah, you know, the dip or the, the kiss, it was fantastic. And from the distance, as you pulled out from the boat, it was like, I was like, they rented the boat, go for them, go <laughs> for them. That's what I kept thinking. Like, yeah, I feel the same, yeah. So this is for each of you. What's the one moment, this is the last question, in the episode as you watch it that hits you the hardest, that pulls at your own heartstrings the most, even though you wrote it and you directed it? Why don't you start, Mark, and then Jesse will have the last word. In shooting it, it was Sarah getting on the phone to her dad up until that point I'd been emotionally involved but I hadn't kind of been kicked in the head in the way that I guess I'd anticipated and particularly from reading the words and then Sarah <laughs> Sarah picks up the phone and then Jesse and I were just in pieces I think as I recall watching that first take uh, it was just brilliant um and Sarah's just that she has that Meryl Streep thing where you call cut and she goes how is that you want another one and she's immediately <laughs> out of it again and then and it feels almost like an insult because she's just ripped your heart out and then she's completely back to being Sarah for, you I know. need a sandwich sandwich exactly. sandwich boy get over here yeah. what about you Jesse I'm afraid the same one I've been watching it we've been doing the music in the last few days so I've had to watch it a lot and I find it well I find it quite cathartic actually I don't not want to see it but it, every single time it's emotionally her voice cracks and she realizes and she has the most rapid transition from this very public it's got the quality of a nightmare and you know for people who've had bad news that thing the sudden tip of the world it happens almost more quickly for her yep. than anyone else and the ways that she reacts with this just uh, wanting to deny it and then sort of cheerful and, th and then angry, it's, I find it very affecting. It is, absolutely. It is quite an episode. I don't think it's a happy episode. They're out on the sea without the captain. It's, it's a very scary thing for a lot of people, uh, speaking of boats. Anyway, thank you so much. It's a wonderful episode. It really is. And I think you did it exactly right, both of you. Thank you so much for joining us, Jesse and Mark. Thanks, Cara. Thank you very much. That's very generous of you. Yeah, thank you so much. So now is the time we would normally talk about the real world of succession, but today we have a very special guest with us from the world of the show. Joining me now is the man at the center of the succession universe, the son that we all merely orbit around, Brian Cox, who plays Logan Roy. Since I cannot find a dead billionaire to interview, they never die, they just remarry, we have Brian. Brian, it's an honor to have you on the podcast. Thank you. Nice to be here. So everyone has seen episode three, Logan is dead. It's the moment the entire series has been building up to. The show is, after all, called Succession. How did you look at this happening? Did you expect it? And uh, talk to me a little bit about his fate. I mean, I knew that was something would have to be done, you know, in order to complete the show. Mm -hmm. And I knew that he would probably have to die. Jesse called me in. He said, I'm, I'm afraid I'm going to have to tell you that Logan is going to die. And I went, okay, he's going to die. I didn't quite expect it to happen as early as it did. But then we were locked into the fact that each episode is one day, which we haven't done in the series before. So he dies on day three. I was fine about it. Uh, as long as I was getting paid. <laughs> you kill me off in episode three, does that mean you stop paying me? <laughs> no. Well, I'm a natural-born Scot, so we think about things like that. And it's interesting how they did the death. And I have a secret sort of fantasy that actually we don't actually see Logan die. Mm -hmm. We know about it, we hear about it, <laughs> but we don't actually see it. 
We don't even know if that body at the end ah. of that episode is Logan's body. You know, so there's there's a sort of mystery that uh, is Logan dead, or is he just gone into somewhere else? You know, or is he testing his family to see how they're going to react when he's dead? You know, that's that's the other attitude. You see, I'm I'm much more imaginative than people give me credit for. You know, so so that's my feeling about it. I can see that. Yeah, so I just thought, you know, maybe he's not dead. There you go. Okay, well, I love this conspiracy theory so that there could be a sequel, that Logan really is living and creating a new life somewhere else or will reappear. Somewhere in the north of Scotland. Okay, let's say he actually died. It is all off screen. Was that the right way to do it or should have you had a great, you know, you're a Shakespearean actor, a great death scene? Did you want something like that or do you feel this was effective? It's not my responsibility. What the writers decide, the writers decide. There's an element of the performing monkey in being an actor, you know. You follow your mercenary calling and you draw your wages, you know, and that's fine, and I accept that. And these decisions are made, you know, I would have probably preferred to have died in episode six, you know, maybe rather than episode mm-hmm. three. I just felt it was a bit early. But then given the fact that each episode is one day, I understand why that happened. But I didn't mind dying. I don't mind that. You know, we all die, and it's inevitable. And ironically, my eldest sister's just passed away. And then last year, at the end of last year, my father-in-law, who's actually my age, passed away. So there's been quite a bit of death around. And then, of course, Logan passing away. Mm-hmm. And it's inevitable. And it's the one way that you can complete the show, by Logan dying. And I think within the rigor of Jesse's work, it's the only answer. It's the way you had to do it. Do you think Logan ever saw this coming or did he was going to live forever? A lot of the people I cover who especially are like Logan do have a way of going through life that they're going to never die. Yeah, I think that's true. But I think given the fact that he was very ill in the first season and that he knows that there's a, there's a weakness there in him, I'm not quite sure if he's died of a stroke or a heart attack. It's still unclear. See, I never watch it. I don't watch the show. Oh, wow. People tell me about it. Mm -hmm. Because my view is it's bad enough doing it without having to fucking watch it. You know what I mean? (laughs) (laughs) I mean, I love the doing. I love the doing. It's the doing is the main thing. The watching is a sidebar. Okay. And the watching is for the public. It's not for me. Yeah, like last night I went... I went and consumed several tequilas while the last episode was being played. That was the premiere. Yeah. And I was much happier doing that and, you know, watching my acting. I see. Okay. So you were just outside in the bar. I was outside in the bar, yeah. But that's me. I've never been really interested in watching myself. I've only been interested in doing it, you know. And it's the doing of it that's the most important thing. Well, let's talk about the doing, Logan's final days. Now, even though you didn't watch it, it's quite good. He seems a little out of it, a little adrift, a little lonely. Um, The dinner scene with his bodyguard was poignant and sad in so many ways. Oh, I love that scene. It's one of my favorite scenes in the whole show. Yeah, I agree. I agree. He's getting ready to sell his company to a rich tech kid. How do you look at where he is right then, especially in that scene with the bodyguard, which to me was just heartbreaking? Well, I think he's an exceedingly lonely man. And I think that kind of wealth, that kind of power makes the individual lonely. 
sometimes to the point of craziness, nuts, you know. I mean, look at Howard Hughes, how Howard Hughes ended his life, you know. Uh, mm -hmm. Brilliant brain in many ways, but kind of totally dysfunctional. And uh, mm -hmm. I don't think Logan is a Howard Hughes. I think he's much more circumspect. And also, when Jesse first approached me about the role, and I talked to him and Adam McKay. Mm -hmm. Adam McKay was here in L.A. and Jesse was in, I think he was in Italy and I was in London. You know, it was only going to be a one-season part. And I just thought yeah. that this was going to be a great show. And I was looking forward. To, I would happily do it. And there was a possibility that he would only be in one series, that he may not go on to other series. And I was fine with that. You know, I thought, well, that's mm -hmm. okay. That'll work. And then... I suggested to Jesse that he could be Scots. Mm -hmm. Now, if you're a Scots person, or even we say Scotch, believe it or not, that's mm -hmm. the old phrase of the Scotch, we, it's a different sensibility. It's a different cultural sensibility. And it's a, there is a different relationship to death in that sense. So Jesse said, absolutely not. He has to be American. He's got to be American. And I said, fine, he's American. I'll play it American. Mm -hmm. Except I think his sense of America and his geography was a little out because he made him born in Quebec, which <laughs> is not the United States of America as far as I know, unless they've taken it over, maybe even I, and I hadn't noticed. But, you know, so I thought, okay, he's American. Adam McKay, on the other hand, because he is, as we would say, Adam Mackay, not McKay, is of Scottish heritage. So he thought it was a great idea that it would be a Scot. So for nine episodes, nine episodes of the first season, I played this guy born in Quebec. Finally, we get to Eastern East Noor, and we're doing the wedding scene, and there's my old friend and lovely actor Peter Friedman, and he sits there and he says, oh, by the way, uh, they've changed your birthplace. Hmm. And I went, what? What do you mean they've changed my birthplace? He said, oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. No, they've changed it. And I went, oh, really? So where am I born? He said, I have no idea. I can't remember. He said, oh, hang on. I'll look it up. And he went to his device and he said, oh, yeah, here. It's here. He said, you were born in somewhere called Dundee, Scotland. And I went, but that's where I was born. And he said, well, that's a, that's a coincidence. I said, yeah, it's a hell of a fucking coincidence to be told in the ninth <laughs> fucking episode that there you are, you, you, your birthplace, you weren't born in Quebec, you're born in Scotland. So it puts a whole different, and Jesse didn't quite realize this, it puts a whole fucking different spin on the show. He's a Scot. Which means what? He's wandering? Yeah, he's a Scot. He's of no fixed abode. He's been moved around throughout his life. He's this kid who's been, who came across, we decided he came across with a form of kinder transport that happened just before the war, where a whole bunch of kids did go to Canada and were taken to Canada. And we reckoned that's what he was. And that he came back to Scotland and probably worked at one of the one of the Dundee, because Dundee's a big newspaper town. That's the three J's, Duke, Jam, and Journalism. So that would be it. So I thought, well, you know, it's all, it's all up for grabs. You know, you, you, there's, no, right. there's no definite answer to anything. And that really made right. me think. So I went to Jesse and I said, Jesse, why have you changed my birthplace? He didn't even tell me why. He just said, oh, we thought it'd be a little surprise. 
And I said, it's a hell of a fucking surprise. You have an actor, you have him for nine episodes, and you, you're so firm that he's American. And then finally, oh, we sat around the writer's room and we decided to change your birthplace. Then I go, it's all a fucking bollocks anyway. Let's just get on with it and do the job. Is that clear? Is that clear? Yes, it is. You stopped being Canadian, which is perfect. Yeah, I stopped being Canadian. I mean, I was doing a very bad Canadian accent, as it turned out. You were doing a bad Canadian in general. But they, he called. He had to do that speech at ATM, which was also a great moment, where he calls them all pirates. That's right. What is he trying to do there, from your perspective? He's trying to rally the troops. It's General Patton rallying the troops, you know. Mm-hmm. It's Eisenhower. I mean, that's what he's doing. He's rallying the troops, and he's, he's ready for the onslaught. He's ready to make ATN the new Fox program. You know, he's going to take over. He's right. going to be more right-wing, more extreme, you know. I mean, this is the interesting thing about the show, of course, and that's where Jesse's a genius because of the political context of the show. Mm-hmm. He is a political writer. You know, he may pretend that he isn't, but he is. And it's a great... Great premise. But he's not a pirate. But do you think he's capable of it? He's a pirate. Of course he's a pirate. He's been a pirate all his life. Did you know that Captain Kidd was born in Dundee, the famous pirate? No, I didn't. Well, there you go. You should fucking learn things, you know, and I'll tell you. I should learn things. He was born in Dundee, and Jesse doesn't even know that. I know that, but he doesn't. (laughs) (laughs) Captain Kidd is a pirate. Got it. So one of the things that a lot of people I cover in tech and in media, they call themselves pirates. And of course, Apple had the famous pirate symbol above their headquarters. But they're very rich and they're very powerful. And they're really not pirates in the strict sense of, say, Captain Kidd. No. And I think that's a very good point, actually. And I think that's Logan's curse. He'd love to be a pirate. He feels he's a pirate. But circumstance makes him definitely not a pirate. But he's got a pirate spirit. He feels, and that's, that's why probably his life has come to an end. Because he hasn't done what he should have done, which was to be a real pirate mm-hmm. in the tradition of Captain Kidd. Instead, he, he sort of he gets more and more suffocated by this wealth and power. It seems that's what's happening. Yeah, that's right. It doesn't suit him. It doesn't hang on him. He's a tragic character. He's a great, mm-hmm. it's a great tragic role. It's one of the great roles and, and you can't mm-hmm. get around it. And that's why everybody, you know, lock on to Logan in the way they do. I mean, Jesse mm-hmm. has created one of the great roles in television. You know, it's, it's there with Sopranos. It, so have you. Well, yeah, yeah, I suppose. Right. The whole show is about his kids, obviously. But I contrasted the scene when he was trying to apologize to them to the Italian scene with Kendall, where he's just terrible. What a terrible... Yeah, but you've got it wrong. You've got it complete. Everybody gets that scene totally wrong. Okay, tell me. Well, let me tell you about that scene. Okay. So he comes along to a dinner to talk to his son. Right. And his son does this gesture with, oh, that's not for him, that's for you. It's as if to say, oh, I'm going to make him think that I'm poisoning him. Yeah. And he goes, oh, for fuck's sake, Ah, don't give me that. You wanted me to think that you're poisoning me. Okay, I'll take it one step further. Where's my grandson? He's got no intention of poisoning his grandson because he knows it's a fantasy. So his grandson comes on and says, will you taste the food for me? Mm -hmm. And he does. And it blows the balloon out. But the gesture, if you watch the scene, comes from 
Jeremy comes from Kendall. He makes that gesture. Mm -hmm. And naturally, Logan responds rightly. And he says, this is a bollocks. This is a nonsense, what you're doing. You know, be straight with me. Don't give me a fake plate of food and then take it away. Say, oh, that's not for him. This is for him. And you go, oh, I know what you're doing. You're trying to make me think that I'm being poisoned. Okay, I'll go along with that improv that you're having. Huh. That's the point. Wow. Now, do you understand? Yes, I do. I do. And what is the scene? He took it to a large level, though, in that case. Well, he always does. You have to take it to a large level because that's the only way you prove your point. Right. Especially when you've got dumbass children like he's got. <laughs> you call them losers. No, they're losers. They are losers. There you go. But you also say you love them. What does that mean in that scene, in that carrier, which is a perfect place for you to deliver that message? Yeah, because he does love them. That's his Achilles heel. He'd be a lot better off if he didn't love his children. He'd be a happier man, but he loves his children and it's a conflict. He can't deal with it. He can't deal with the pain of it. The fact that he loves his children and they don't honor him. Mm -hmm. All they want is entitlement, avarice. Mm -hmm. That's all they represent. And he's just a guy, Mm -hmm. crude, rough, sadly, you know, destroyed romantic cynic who's become more and more right wing. He didn't start off like that. He started off probably in a different way. And he's become like that because of circumstance. And he's trying to get his children to take on the responsibility and own it. Mm -hmm. But they don't see it. They only see it in terms of their own avarice. And he can't do anything about that because he loves his children. Does his brutality lend itself to that, create those children in that way? Yeah. Well, he is brutal. That's his method. He's tough. He's tough. He's not sentimental. And that's a very Scottish thing, too. That's why, in a way, when I first suggested he should be Scots, and we could have wasted all that fucking time that for nine episodes he was in, you know, Jesus Christ. It came through. The Scott was there. It was a silent Scott. I don't know what a Canadian Logan would be. Oh, no, a Canadian Logan would see, hey, hey, all right, hey, what are you doing, hey? Ah, great, hey? Yeah, bollocks. <laughs> Scottish people are also funny, in my experience. Oh, yeah, we're, we're, we're Naturally, I think of myself as a comedian. You know, I've become this great tragedian, but I actually, as I get older, I just want to laugh more because life is ludicrous. <laughs> yeah, in a lot of ways, succession is a comedy. Yes, it is. It is. Do you have a favorite Logan Roy moment or scene from all the four seasons? Yeah, I think my favorite scene is definitely the scene with Colin. You're a good guy. Thank you, sir. You're my pal. Thank you. You're my best pal. Thank you. I mean, what are people? Right? What are people? Um, like... In- They're economic units. He's trying to understand something very profound. And it's a sad scene because he's got no friends. He's friendless, you know, and... And he thinks that this guy's his best pal. And of course, and in many ways, he's, he's great because he's just there. He's, he's constant. Yeah. What Logan wants more than anything else is constancy. Some kind of constancy. Some kind of thing that says, this is what it is. He's not found it with any of his partners. He has it with Kerry. 
the wonderful Zoe Winters, there's a certain constancy there, the way she came from outfield. And she's, I think she's fantastic in the show. Yeah, she is. Do you have a least favorite scene? I'm just curious if there's something you're like, oh, that. No, no, the writing's too good. You know, there's never been a least favorite scene. The writing is brilliant. It really is. You know, it's a brilliantly written show. And, and, and Jesse is a, you know, he's a bit of a genius. He really is. He's an extraordinary man. I have such, yeah. I mean, joking aside, I have such, such respect for Jesse. And I've even more respect for him because he decided to end the show. And I think that's a great thing. Too many of these shows go well beyond the sell-by date. Yeah. It's finite as opposed to infinite. And his integrity is second to none. What will the Roy family be like without Logan and beyond from your perspective? Since they are losers, since they are, they are full of avarice and greed and incompetence, does any of them rise to the occasion or is it just... It is what it is with the great man gone in the middle. It is what it is. I, I, and I don't think you can speculate. And I don't think that Logan would ever speculate. You know, he didn't, he dies. Life is taken away from him before anything is achieved. He doesn't achieve what he wanted to achieve. And he doesn't know where mm-hmm. it's going to go to after he's, because he's gone. He's not here anymore. Mm-hmm. And that's life. That's the way it is. You know, we, we own. We try to be in control, and we're not in control. Nobody's in control. We're all subject to the whole business of being alive, which is contradictory. And we sort of, and this is what really gets me, is that we fill ourselves with spurious belief systems in order to legitimize what our lives are. And I think that's a load of bollocks for a start. Mm -hmm. Just examine our humanity. Look at who we are as human beings. And that's brilliantly what Jesse does. He really looks at who people are. And even though he's quite a political writer, he does see it in terms of its context. Mm -hmm. And that's his gift. That's his great gift. So in, in that regard, do you think Logan's a sympathetic character when you think of the end? I think he's misunderstood. Mm-hmm. I wouldn't say he's sympathetic. It's understandable that people dislike him and are frightened of him and all that. But he is misunderstood. Mm-hmm. Nobody understands where he's coming from. And there have been brilliant hints throughout mm-hmm. the season, the scars on the back, things which are... And that's what Jesse does brilliantly. He never discusses. Mm-hmm. He allows things to be, and that's up for the audience to make what they want to make of it. It's been the best time for me working with Jesse. And Mark Mylord. The director, yeah, he's fantastic. So when you think about what would be next for Logan if he lived, say he came back? Would he become a pirate finally? Would he escape what he's wrought? I think he would probably go the way of Andrew Carnegie. Uh He'd find a little place in the north of Scotland. He would be with Kerry. He would be with people who love him, who genuinely, he'd have Mm -hmm. Colin there working on the estate, and he would cut back and wait, wait for the inevitable. And not the inevitable in terms of death, but the inevitable in terms of where that empire is going and what's going to happen. And if it's going to be good or it's going to be bad. And then suddenly somebody would ring him up one day and say, hey, boss, it's a shithole. Can you come back? And he goes, fuck off. (laughs) I think we should end on that. I have to say, Brian, for gifting us four amazing seasons of Logan Roy, you have... It's legendary. It really is. Thank you. I'm not going to tell you to fuck off because you don't deserve that. (laughs) But fuck off. Fuck off. Okay. (laughs) I'll fuck off then. 
Excuse my language. Hey, I don't fucking care. <laughs> but blame Logan Roy. Don't blame me. <laughs> Thank you. Bye. Take care. All the best. Bye-bye. It's hard for me to imagine succession without Logan Roy, but if we had to lose him, what a way to go. I want to thank my guests, creator Jesse Armstrong, director Mark Mylod, and the man, the myth, the legend, Logan Roy, now dead. But Brian Cox sure is still kicking. Thank you so much for coming on the show, Brian. Next week, we'll be back to talk about episode four, the next stage in this Roy family. The beat goes on. New episodes of the podcast come out every Sunday night after the latest episode of Succession airs on HBO and HBO Max. Make sure to subscribe wherever you find your podcasts so you never miss an episode. The official HBO Succession podcast is a production of HBO and Pineapple Street Studios. Our executive producers at Pineapple are Barry Finkel and Gabrielle Lewis. Our producers are Elliot Adler, Ben Goldberg, and Noah Camuso. Our editor is Darby Maloney. Engineering and mixing by Hannes Brown. Production music is courtesy of HBO. Special thanks to Michael Gluckstadt, Kenya Reyes, and Savon Slater at HBO Podcasts. And I am, of course, Kara Swisher. We'll see you next week. Fuck off. Hacks is coming back, and so is the official Hacks podcast. With us, your hosts. I'm Paul W. Downs. I'm Jen Statsky. And I'm Lucia Aniello. We're the creators and showrunners. Each week on the podcast, we'll break down the new episodes. We'll also have special guests, cast and crew from the show like Hannah Einbinder and Gene Smart. Hacks Season 3 is available to stream now on Max. Be sure to listen wherever you get your podcasts or listen directly on Max.